Our message this morning comes from 1 Peter, chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. We pick up where we left off last week. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to open them with me, 1 Peter, chapter 2, verse 13. As you do, I want to give you some background on a man by the name of Nero. Although that name is never mentioned in our passage this morning, he plays an important role. He's the Roman emperor during the time at which Peter wrote this letter. We'll start at the end and work our way back. At age 30, Nero died by the sword. Nero was known as a violent, tyrannical, depraved man. He was a man who lived without a conscience. He was a Roman emperor. In an effort to rid himself of his mother, he arranged a shipwreck. When she survived the shipwreck, he sent his fleet commander to finish the job. His second wife died mysteriously, some think by his hand, and it appears as though his fingerprints were on the poisoning of his stepbrother also. Nero was a man who made enemies. He spurned all the customs of Rome, his interests in poetry and music and sports had led him to the stage. That's far outside the norms of Roman culture. He created scandal. As a result of this, the Roman elite hated him. To the great shock of the aristocrats of the time, he even went to the Olympic Games. Shockingly, every event he entered, he won. Nero was the great persecutor of Christians as well. After a massive fire consumed Rome, he took it out or took an opportunity to persecute believers. It was a persecution that turned quite gruesome. A Roman historian named Tacitus writes this quote, Perishing Christians were additionally made into sports, even though they were clearly guilty and merited being made the most recent example of the consequences of crime, people began to pity these sufferers because they were consumed not for the public good, but on account of the fierceness of one man. Even Tacitus understood the railings of Nero. He opened up a gate of persecution that included one man, a man whose writing has come to be very influential, informative to us, a man by the name of Peter. I want you to hear what Peter wrote a few years before his death by Nero. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority, or to governors as sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God, that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men, and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Peter wrote during the reign of Emperor Nero. It would have been either right at the outset of his reign or at some time during the worst of it. 
And what he wrote had an immediate application. It applied immediately for those Christians who read this. First century believers, they toiled under evil leaders, men like Nero. It would have been terribly easy to make a case for lawbreaking. The government is run by pagans, they could have said. They're godless fools. Every day they're doing things to hurt our country and to harm our faith. And more than that, they might have concluded, this is not even our home. We are pilgrims passing through, aliens and sojourners. And as true as any of that may have been, our Lord spoke through a martyr named Peter. Peter says, submit. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. That is to say that God has a plan for the believer's relationship to government. Though it's unnatural, difficult, even unusual, this morning we will consider three paradoxes of submission to authority. Now, last Sunday, you may recall, we entered a new section in Peter. We are moving out of our identity, who we are in the Lord, and now moving to application, what we do as a result. I begin with our first paradox, verses 13 and 14. This is God's command for glory. God's command for glory. You honor God when you honor Caesar. In verse 13, an airbag deploys. At least it feels that way, doesn't it? The first word is something of a commanding word. A word that shocks. Now, this is not a popular word to the average human being. It is, however, popular to Peter. Six times between here and the end of the letter, Peter uses this word, submit. Verse 13, submit to authority. Verse 18, submit to masters. Chapter 3, verse 1, wives submit to husbands. It's in chapter 3, verse 5, verse 22, chapter 5, verse 5. It is a central theme. Peter uses to teach living, Christian living. But at the same time, there's just something about this word. It provokes a response. There's something instinctive in us that responds to this word. I think it's because by nature, you and I are rebels. It's a sixth sense. We can see, we can hear, we can touch. We can taste, we can smell, we rebel. It's hardwired in our DNA. It's that natural. Ever since the Garden of Eden, it's been passed down almost genetically to every one of us. And to compound all of this, you and I live in a nation that's founded upon rebellion as a virtue. Stephen Cole said it this way, quote, we live in a country that was founded on a revolution and in which defiance of government authority is viewed as a basic constitutional right. It's primitive to who we are and culturally it's instilled in us from the youngest of ages. The contours of our heart are, are making submission difficult enough to say nothing of submission to wicked, evil rulers. 
They're always going to be around, yet our relationship is to be one of submission. Not to submit is to be subordinate. Some of your Bible translations read that. It's to be subject to. Biblically, to submit is to, to willingly or voluntarily put ourselves under another. This is Jesus before God the Father, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 28. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. This is the church before Jesus in Ephesians 5, verse 24. The church is subject to Christ. And this is a command to Christ's church, to one another. Ephesians 5, verse 21, be subject to one another. To submit is to choose to serve. It's to, to willingly put others' interests above our own. One commentator says, this is not the, the cringing obedience of spineless weaklings. No. This is a picture of the king on his golden throne, sitting in his perfect palace. And it's a picture of that king. He has all that he needs. He is completely joyful. He is well protected, absolutely sovereign. And he steps down from that throne. And he comes out of the castle. And he goes and dies in the field. It is that picture. We submit ourselves for the Lord's sake. Now, it might sound like this passage is about the government or that this passage is about authority or about you or about me. But ultimately, this is a passage about God, about you and God. In fact, he occupies each verse in our passage this morning. Verse 14 is a bit of an odd man out. And we have the Lord in verse 13, the will of God in verse 15, Slaves of God at the end of 16, and a command toward God in 17. And Peter's very good in this passage about helping us to, to keep our theology straight, to make sure that we know this is about God. As much as this passage does point us toward submitting to government authorities, it's ultimately about God. He says it's for the Lord's sake. That's why we submit. That is to say that our allegiance is to Christ. It's not to any political party. It's not to any particular person or candidate. Parties, they, they win and they lose. And, and candidates, they come and they go. But we should submit to governing authorities regardless. But just who should we submit to? Who are these governing authorities? Peter writes, it's every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by God. Now remember that Peter wrote in the, in the world of the Romans, Roman authorities are predominantly in mind. The king of verse 13 is essentially the emperor, some translations have that, and the governors would have been rulers of an area or a province. We meet some through our reading of the Bible, men like Pilate and Festus, and Felix. I'd say in our day, we ought to consider individuals either elected or appointed, as well as agencies and councils as human institutions. 
To translate that literally, it's human creatures. I mean, everywhere else in the New Testament, when this word appears, it has to do either with some creative act that God has done or the result of that act. But we also know that the context determines the translation. So it doesn't read, submit to human creatures, it says human institutions. That's because the passage is about government, about submitting to kings and governors. But again, I think Peter, second time, he helps our theology here. The authorities of this world, they really are mere creatures. They are not God. In verse 14, they are sent by him, or even sent through him. Paul writes over in Romans 13, there is no authority except from God, and those to which exist are established by God. Over there, two verses later, Peter says that the government is a minister of God or servant of God. It's the same word we use for deacon. In other words, rulers only rule because God appoints them. It's also important to remember that there's one person and only one person who holds all authority, and his name is Jesus Christ. He says in Matthew 28, verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. No other persons, no other institutions, no one holds all authority. Only Jesus does. And that means that wherever we do find authority, it is a limited authority, and it is a delegated authority. Every institution has only so much authority, it's limited, and all authority is sourced from God, it's delegated from God, given by the sovereign Christ. So you and I, we submit to the state because Christ delegated a portion of his authority to the state. Essentially, to submit to them is to submit to Christ. Now, notice in our passage that these authorities are supposed to do two main things. The punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. In other words, the government's supposed to punish criminals. Retribution is one function of governing activity. It's not to say there's no place for rehabilitation, but an institution cannot only try to rehabilitate. There's a place both for rehabilitation and a place for retribution. A well-structured society, it strikes the balance. This passage also reminds us that you and I are not to take vengeance into our own hands. The government inflicts punishment for crime. Steven Seagal makes a great movie, but not a great citizen. Just before Paul wrote on submission, in fact, in Romans 13, what did he say? Never take your own revenge. Leave room for the wrath of God. Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And he does this often through governments that he's instituted. Secondly, you see a second function. Authorities are to praise those who do right. In the days of Peter, the Romans would honor their people. They would build statues to them. They would provide commendations. They would grant special privileges. These are, these are the things that governments did to honor people. But what happens if all of this gets backwards? What if they punish those who do right? And what if they praise evildoers? I'll give you a moment just 
to imagine such a nation? What if governing authorities don't do what they're supposed to do? What if they intentionally reject God? Say like the man Nero. What does Peter say? Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human institution. Perhaps at this point, we might acknowledge a certain level of hypocrisy in all of this. To teach submission where there has been rebellion, that seems like hypocrisy to me. Was Peter a hypocrite? He is, after all, a man with an extensive record. In Acts chapter 4, he and John are arrested, and they spend the night in jail. Not exactly a place where you want to be if you're going to write verse 13. The next day, authorities order him not to preach Christ. And what's his response? Whether it is right in the sight of God to give heed to you rather than to God, you be the judge. For we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And one chapter later, Peter is back at it, preaching where he should not have been preaching. He returns to the temple. We might call this the very heart of state authority. This is where the Jewish leaders were in cahoots with the Romans. This is how they ran the place. This is like returning to Al Capone's neighborhood to sell newspapers when you've been told in no uncertain terms, do not come back here. And Peter gets arrested again. And he's thrown in jail again, this time a public jail. There goes the Christian witness. And as his court day dawns, as the sun casts its shadow through the iron bars against the dirty prison wall, the authorities arrive to find Peter gone for a third time preaching in the temple. And once the state finally figures out which way is up in all of this, they arrest Peter again. The cops are probably on a first name basis with him. And the council fumes at his insubordination. We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. They're basically saying, Peter, you're trying to blame the death of Jesus on us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. Peter at this point is a gnat's whisker away from death. And in exchange for that, they flog him. 40 lashings, 39, excuse me. This is a cruel punishment. He would be knelt down and he would receive two in the back and one in the front 13 times up to 39. And then they release him. And when they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for Christ's name. And every day, in the temple, and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. The government catches up with him. In Acts chapter 12, Herod kills John's brother James. He arrests Peter again, and you guessed it, threw him in jail. By the way, 
give you some historical context, right around this time back in Italy, Nero was about four or five years old. A man named Caligula was ruling at the time, equally depraved in his rulership. And on the night of his trial, Peter's trial, an angel appears to him in his prison cell. And he releases him. It's almost comical. Peter goes to, to Mary's home. This is Mary, the mother of Mark. Mark's gospel is the account according to Peter, the account of Jesus. And Peter's outside knocking on the door, and they don't know what to do. They can't believe that Peter would be outside knocking. He's supposed to be sentenced severely in the morning. Men just don't get out of jail. I mean, the guy's sweating in his sandals. He's an escaped fugitive, and they're wondering whether they should let him in. Well, in summary, Peter was arrested three times. He deliberately disobeyed governing authorities twice. We can chalk it up to three if we want to assume that getting thrown in a prison cell means stay in here. Twice he spoke words of defiant rebellion to the authorities. We cannot stop talking about what we have seen and heard. We must obey God rather than men. And as the book of Acts, as it moves, as the camera pans from the life of Peter to the life of Paul, we're going to leave Peter in the wind, a wanted fugitive, hardly submitting to any human institution. So, was Peter a hypocrite? I don't think that he was. Because I believe that he understood verse 13 is not a blanket statement. That no human institution receives unrestricted authority the kind that Caesar was attempting to reign with. Unrestricted authority belongs to one man, and that's Jesus Christ alone. You see, there are exceptions to this command, and the Bible bears it out. That's extremely important that we understand that moving forward as a church in 21st society America. We did a deep dig on this a few years back, if you recall. I think it was a focus of a Sunday school series. And we borrowed from a man named Brett Laird. He was a missionary in the Ukraine. And what made the teaching so helpful was that as a missionary in Ukraine, remember, Ukraine was a Soviet bloc. That was a, a communist country. So they had a unique challenge of trying to, to live biblically and faithfully according to commands like this, but at the same time, know when the government gone too far. So I'd say that we learned in summary, as a general rule, that verse 13 is solid. That verse 13 and 1 Peter chapter 2, this is going to be a general rule that we can follow almost all the time. But we did recognize three instances of when we would not submit. That there are times elsewhere in the Bible as we put it all together that it's not right to submit. First, when governments exceed their delegated authority, they're either requiring disobedience against God or they're restricting our obedience to God. And that was Peter's experience. That's why Peter kept preaching at the temple. That's why Peter kept getting thrown in jail. Secondly, governments exceed their authority when they either demand worship or prevent worship. Think back in the Old Testament. This is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They refused to bow a knee to a false god. They disobeyed their governing authority. And governments exceed their delegated authority. Thirdly, when they intrude on the authority that God gave exclusively to the church or the family. 
And we see three main channels in the, in the New Testament. God delegating authority to the church, to the family, to the government. These are very clear, orderly structures that God has laid out. And Christ has delegated a limited authority to elders, and he's delegated a limited authority to fathers and to husbands. In summary then, to apply this practically, because that's what we're after, if a police car pulls up behind you with the lights on and the siren on, do you pull over? I like how some of you are taking time to think about that. <laughs> you should pull over, just so we're clear. That would be an appropriate use of government authority, one we definitely want to submit to. What if the IRS says you owe taxes? Should you pay them? Okay, good. We're getting, all right, here we go. What if a store owner tells you you may not hand out Bibles on the sidewalk? They're going to call the police. May you hand out Bibles on the sidewalk downtown? Yeah, I believe that you're still allowed to do that. That would be permissible. What about skipping a permit in your building project? Should you do that? No, that's probably not a good idea either. The point I'm trying to make here is that we need to be biblical in our thinking about submission. And verse 13, again, that's going to be a great verse for us. It's going to be a difficult verse at times, but it's a good general verse for us. There are times, however, in the practice of our Christian faith that we're going to conflict with what the government's telling us to do. And we want to remember that all authority only belongs to Jesus Christ. He has our whole heart. And then we listen to a portion of that authority as he's given it to the government. Something of a paradox. We are actually submitting to God when we are submitting to Caesar. God placed any Caesar wherever Caesar rules. A second paradox. Submission to authority is God's will for victory. This is verse 15, our second point this morning. Submission to authority is God's will for victory? We'll learn here that we silence fools when we do good. Verse reminds us that this is the will of God, that by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Again, that word submit makes this quite a paradox. I'm not familiar with many victories won by submission. It certainly doesn't happen in war. We don't exactly build successful businesses by submitting to any customer demand. It's hard to advance a reputation by submitting. At least that's what our rebel hearts would preach. How in the world is submission to tyrants? How's that going to win anything? And verse 15 answers that. That by doing right, you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. What an interesting defense this is. I would call this an apologetic of good deeds. Last time, looking back, in verse 12, we learned that our good deeds, they can actually win the loss to Jesus Christ. That as we make Jesus Christ beautiful, People might want to come and, and know him. In doing good and simply living our lives in a way that serves Christ, what a privilege. The context now here this morning, it's submitting to the state. That in doing these things, namely verse 13, we will silence the ignorance of foolish men. Probably people who are speaking without knowledge about us. Imagine Peter's first century Christians again. They're being slandered 
these foolish men maybe don't have the facts about what they're up to. They don't know the whole story. They're operating out of assumption. They definitely don't heed the wisdom of Proverbs. Chapter 17, verse 28, even fools are thought wise if they keep silent and discerning if they hold their tongue. But Peter says that doing right, doing right is an effective tool to silence them. The word means literally muzzle. It's used of muzzling animals. The Christian silences critics by doing good. It's an act of submission to government. And this is God's strategy. What does Peter call this tactic? He calls it the will of God. It seems like a paradox. Because what do we think? We need a well-crafted argument. We need to shut down their argument. I mean, <laughs> what defendant in a courtroom wins his case by complimenting other people? You need a good argument. But not for the believer. You see, you and I, we walk by faith. We walk by trusting God's ways, knowing we don't always see their fullness. And there's something very powerful about a, a quiet, faithful witness. We see that God can use that this morning to shut down opposition, to silence critics, and to move men. Submission to authority is God's will for victory. It's God's command for glory. And thirdly this morning, it's God's plan for freedom. Again, another paradox, verse 16. Submission to authority is God's plan for freedom. You serve God when you leverage your liberty rightly. The Bible teaches, believer, that you are free. You are free, says Jesus. In John chapter 8, verse 36, he declares, if the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. In Jesus Christ, you are free from the law. You're free from sin. You're free from death. These are the promises of the Lord. Remember, all of those Old Testament rules and stipulations, and this is how you have to come to God. You're not under that. You are free from the law. Now, we're not free to sin, but to live a life instead full of joy in the Lord. You're no longer going to die and spend eternity in hell, but you'll be with God in heaven. There's a freedom in that. But at the same time, we want to be sure that we get our freedom, our definition, correct. Because we've been taught that the American definition of freedom is one thing, and it isn't all bad, but it's not perfect either. I'll just give you a few examples there are things you are free to do in America that you should not do. You're free to commit adultery. You're free to get drunk. You're free to kill babies. We shouldn't do these things. That's not what our freedom is about, not a biblical definition of freedom. You see, the Bible informs our freedom. And one of the freedoms we have is to no longer sin. We're no longer enslaved or chained to sin. In verse 16, Peter sees how this new freedom we enjoy, how it could be used for evil. You follow Christ, not Caesar. Why do we need to follow Caesar and obey him? He's not my Lord. In fact, the government's going to try to take more and more power. It's going to try to take more of my money. They're going to pass really bad legislation. 
I read one poll was taken back in April, 81% of the population disapproves of how Congress handles their job. And let's just be honest this morning, there's institutions and rulers who don't deserve our submission. As free men and women who do serve a greater king, all of those things are true. It'd be very easy to thumb our noses at the government. But what does Peter say? He says, act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. God wants us to use this freedom for him. And that's true in every arena of life. In our context, he wants us to use it to submit to the state. Now, well, there's exceptions to that, and we discussed those a moment ago. But, but generally speaking, as a general rule, we ought to use our freedom to submit to the government. We ought to do it in the Lord. Tom Schreiner, in his commentary in 1 Peter, says it this way, those who use freedom as license for evil reveal that they are not truly free since a life of wickedness is the very definition of slavery. I thought that that was a helpful definition to think about freedom as an excuse for godliness, not as an excuse for evil. And he's arguing in that sentence that to use freedom for evil is to say something very different about ourselves. He speaks about the slavery that, that comes with sin. And if you're here this morning and you remain a slave to sin, I, I want to offer you this freedom that Peter writes. The Bible teaches that you and I are born sinners, that we are in rebellion against God. That sin is our master. We sin because we like to. We we, we, we sin because sin assures us that we are not slaves, that we are in control. At times, I believe, we see the power of sin and we hate its effects, but generally, there's things about sin that we enjoy and that's why we do it. In fact, sin tries to assure us that we are our own master and that sin is no big deal. But Jesus says that everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And what else did he say? That if the Son makes you free, you are free indeed. You'll be free from your sin, and you'll be free from the penalty of that sin if you believe upon Jesus. And he lived a perfect life that you and I, we cannot live. But he died for that sin, and he rose from the dead, and he lives today, and he forgives those who come to him in faith, believing they have sinned, and trusting that he paid the price. The Bible says that you will be free. And Peter argues that we are now free to live for Christ. The Christian life is one of submission in our passage. We saw it submission to governing authorities. And that the Lord has established rulers. That's his economy to say it one way. He, he tells us to submit to them. To submit to them is to submit to Christ. I believe verse 17 serves as an important role in concluding this section. It's something of a bow on the gift. It's an equalizer, and it's also a hammer stroke that just knocks all of this into its place. We read the passage. It's verse 17. It's four short commands. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. That's a really important first word in verse 17. Peter uses this word, and with it, he levels the playing field. 
The command to honor is used of two groups in this passage. Don't miss that. Firstly, it's used of people. Honor all people. At the end of the verse, it's used of kings. Honor the king. And again, I think Peter, one more time here, I would call it a third seed that he plants in this passage. He wants us to keep our theology balanced. We saw earlier, back in verse 13, he called Jesus Lord. Again, he doesn't want us to get confused about who ultimately is the Lord. Not Caesar ultimately, but Jesus. In verse 13 again, he told us to submit to human institutions, technically human creators. That way we remember that those we submit to, they're still earthly. And now we learn for a third time that the same honor due to the king is due to all men and all women. One commentator says, we ought to see everyone as a fellow image bearer and a potential brother or sister in Christ. I love that. That's how we ought to view people, all people. And that means that you and I are going to love not only those who are like us or those who can do something for us or those who deserve honor, but we're going to honor all people. That's what Peter wants. That's what God wants. We see, secondly, we're to love the brotherhood. Again, Peter points back to the family of God. We spend good time in the local church already in Peter. We spoke of the significant role that plays in the life of the Christian. But again, he's calling us to one another here. Imagine these first century believers, and maybe you and I to a point. It's tough out there. The world is not loving, especially when you're trying to take a stand for Jesus Christ. You come into the church, you need the family of God, you need one another, we need love. Thirdly, we are to fear God or revere him. It's that reverential respect that we ought to have for God. This is that great answer to the question, how do I obey the Bible? How do I do the commands of this passage? Fear God, a well-nurtured faith or a well-nurtured fear. That's the key to obedience. And finally, one more time, Peter says simply to honor the king. Well, in conclusion, you and I live in the land of extraordinary blessing. George Washington had called it, quote, the great experiment. Nothing like this had been attempted in, in history in terms of a democracy or a constitutional republic. And with all of the freedoms and the promises that come with this, there are great expectations and high hopes and I think we have those for those in authority. I think that's what makes it more difficult to obey what God has called us to do this morning. Because institutions fail. And because leaders fail. In terms of morals, history has shown a steady decline in morals in our nation, one generation after another. It seems as though every generation finds new and fresh ways to sin. In terms of leaders, Jesus will never be on the ballot. You may find it harder to compliment your leaders than critique them. But as hard as it may be, God calls you and I to submit to those that he appoints. And as you do, remember, it's only for a season. They aren't your final leader. They aren't your ultimate leader. And this isn't your lasting home. Hebrews 13, we learned that those who died in the faith confessed they were strangers and exiles on earth. And it also says they desired a better country. 
They possessed a hope fixed on God's country, on an eternal home that was not this place and not these leaders. And do you know what that passage says about how that made God feel? Quote, God is not ashamed to be called their God. So when we honor authorities, believers, we honor God. And in the end, when we arrive at that final home, we have a perfect king who will be king forever. A Lord who will perfectly punish evil and perfectly reward good. A Lord who is not ashamed to be called our God. Let's pray together. Father, there are moments of testing in this life when it comes to our relationship to the government. It is difficult to submit to begin with because of our fallen nature, more so for some of us, and it's even harder when the government shakes their fist in your face. Lord, you are a long-suffering God. No one is more patient and merciful and gracious. And I pray that we would model that toward our governing authorities. And you would grant us a humility, especially in seasons of difficulty, if they become more intense or more common. Oh, Father, grant us a grace to know the difference, when to submit, when to speak for Christ, and when to do both. Thank you, Father, for this passage and for this word this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.